Good afternoon. My name is Chad Mary. I'm one of the student workers here in Aspire. It's good to see you. Um, this weekend we've been busy. My parents actually just flew in from the U.S. and so we have been playing um, tourist guide all over London. And it's nice now that we've been here over a year. We can actually take people around. We've been the one that had been, you know had to be led around for so long that now we're taking them to places and they're. Uh, loving it. And I'm just reminded how awesome of a city that we live in. I mean, it's pretty cool. All the places we get to go, the things we get to experience. And um, they've really been enjoying that too. They're actually here this morning um, with us. So right now, I think they're still recovering from some, from, uh, some jet lag. But um, anyway, now we are moving on back to the, uh, the book of Luke. So we've been in a series called the Connected Life Series. Uh, and that was three weeks. And then if you remember, prior to that, we were looking in the book of Luke. And so we finished the first three chapters, actually plus half of chapter four, and now we're picking it up where we left off. Um, but before we begin, I had a question for you. And the question is, if you were writing a biography about someone's life, someone that you admired, someone that you wanted to make um, look good, how would you begin that story? How would you start that story? Probably with some story of success, right? Maybe an act of heroism, something they did that, that made them look good. You probably wouldn't start it with them going to their hometown, the place where people actually knew who they were, being rejected by those people to the point that they wanted to throw them off a cliff and murder them. That's probably not how you'd want to start that, right? Well, that's how Luke, in chapter 4, actually begins Jesus' ministry. So he did some other things, but Luke wants to highlight, here's where Jesus is starting his ministry, and he's rejected. That's interesting, right? We'll come back to why that is as we look further into the text today. But just a quick recap. Chapters 1 through 3, what did we cover? What, what did we maybe miss if we weren't here? Chapter 1 is it's Jesus' birth being foretold. His miraculous birth being foretold. Chapter 2 was the birth of Jesus, his incarnation, God becoming flesh, coming down to be with us. Chapter 3, John the Baptist prepares the way, preparing the way for Jesus' public ministry. And if you remember, um, John the Baptist, he actually baptizes Jesus. And when he does that, it says that the heavens opened and the Spirit came down and descended on Jesus like a dove, that he was anointed by God the Father with the Spirit at his baptism. And then if you look at the end of chapter 3, it tells the genealogy of Jesus. So it traces, traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam, the first man, which is interesting. And Andy, a uh, priest on this, did a great job of pointing out that the reason why he traced it all the way back to Adam is because he's highlighting that what happened with Adam in the garden. When he was tempted, he failed. So the representative of mankind had failed before God and sin had entered the world. Well, Jesus, what happens in chapter 4? After his baptism, he's led into the wilderness where he's tempted. And what happens? He's tempted three times and he actually overcomes that temptation, setting himself up as the new representative for those who come to him by faith, the one who has overcome temptation. And while he's coming back from uh, being tempted in the desert, that's where Luke picks up the story in our context today. And he goes to Nazareth. And so kind of the pattern of what we'll see in the, the second half of chapter four here is he really wants to highlight what Jesus' ministry is going to entail. What are the things he's going to do? And really it's three things. He's going, his, his ministry will entail preaching or proclaiming. It'll entail um, driving out demons, that Jesus is exercising his authority over the spiritual realm. We'll see that all throughout um, the book of Luke. And then also we'll see him healing. 
So his miracles, that he's healing people. So he sets the pattern. But it's interesting, as we begin here again with Nazareth, the rejection of Jesus, I think there's three things that he's trying to put forward that this is the reason why he came. This is Jesus' mission according to the second half of chapter 4. And it's these three things that we're going to look at today. That he came to, one, fulfill prophecy. He came to proclaim the good news and to expose our hearts, to get to our hearts. So let's begin with fulfilling prophecy. So as was already read, Jesus shows up at his hometown. This is the place, maybe you're from a small village, and you can go to the local pub or or the local shop, and people will know who you are. They'll know your name, right? That was Jesus' scenario. This is Nazareth. This was a backwater town. This was not a flourishing place like London. This was a place that you weren't really proud to be from, actually. And here, this is Jesus' hometown. This is where he grew up. And people knew who he was. And so, you know, when we hear the name Jesus, we have a lot of preconceived ideas. He was this great religious leader. But back then, that was just a common name. It was like my wife and I coming in to inspire and meeting all these Toms and Pete's. It's like, I've never met so many Toms and Pete's in my life. It's just, it was a common name. And so was Jesus. And so when Jesus stands up to, to say these things, and well, when he gets up to preach in the synagogue, one, they've heard about what he's done in other places. He's done some miracles already. And so they come to see him. They're intrigued, right? He's back home. The hometown boy's there. He's going he's gonna to preach a sermon. They want to they hear from him. And so he gets up in the synagogue. That was their place of worship. He's handed a scroll, and it's the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah is an Old Testament book of prophecy. It was written 700 years before Jesus' time. And he chooses a place within that scroll, and it, he chooses chapter 61. And chapter 61 had significance to that Israelite community, to that Jewish community, because it was one of their messianic prophecies. It was talking about the Messiah who's going to come, the one who's going to come and save them. And in their minds, they were thinking he's going to come and, uh, you know, defeat our enemies and bring us back to a place of prominence and power. A Messiah is going to come and save us. And so he starts reading this, this prophecy to them. And this is what it says. I'll read it again. This is Isaiah 61. He's quoting it. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners in recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, he gives it to the attendant, and then he sits down. That was kind of the posture for the teacher. He would sit down then explain the text that he just read. And as he begins to explain it, it says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Talk about the ultimate mic drop moment. I mean, it must have just, I'm trying to put myself in that setting when Jesus said that, with the knowledge of his listeners. The listeners would have known this text. This was a familiar text to them. And he says, the one this is about, the one I just read that this is describing, it's me. It's been fulfilled in front of you. I'm picturing silence and then a lot of murmuring <laughs> happening. What? And we see that there's some murmuring actually that goes on because they say, well, he, he's a good communicator. They're amazed at how gracious his words are, but isn't this Joseph's son? Wait, this is the kid that grew up down the street. This is his dad owns that carpentry shop not too far from here. This is Jesus. This is the Surely we would have known he's the Messiah by now if it's really him. And so there's this 
sense of murmuring and questioning going on. And Jesus perceives this. And I don't think he's perceiving this with supernatural power. <laughs> this isn't one of the, I don't, maybe he's reading their thoughts. I don't know. But I think he's reading the room. And I think he's noticing that, okay, what they want is a sign. That's what they're looking for. Because he says that in verse 23. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what, you, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. He's just come from Capernaum. He's done some miracles, and now they want a sign. And so they're not believing him at his word, right? The rejection has begun. So Jesus came to fulfill prophecy. Well, let's look a little bit about this prophecy, like what it says, and get a little clarity on what he's communicating here by reading Isaiah 61. He starts out with this. He says, the, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, we, we know that happened at his baptism. The Spirit of the Lord actually descended upon him, and he was anointed by God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To do what? To proclaim the good news to the poor. And then we see that he's going to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, sight for the blind, set the oppressed free, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the, the, the way this is to be read is not, it's to be read on a spiritual plane. Yes, Jesus came, and he, he, he met the needs of some of the poor, and he healed um, a lot of people, and he, um, you know, he healed the blind and gave them sight. He did some of these things in his ministry. We read about them. We read about some of them already right now, but what we're to actually see here is that, and he's going to go on to explain, and we know this is true because the way that the, his listeners respond is that it's to be read on a spiritual plane, and that, here's what I mean by that. That he has come for those who are poor in spirit. Those who see their need for God. That's who he's come for. He's come for those who are prisoners. That the truth is that we're actually held captive by sin. In Ephesians 2 it says that all of us are actually, we're born and, and we're actually dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually speaking. Physically alive, but spiritually we're prisoners. And blind, we don't see the the reality around us of our need for God. And so to read this on a, on a spiritual plane as well. And just a, an illustration I was thinking in light of this idea of being blind to something that's actually around us that's, that's true, but that we can't see. And uh, a few years ago, we went on a family vacation. This was in Arkansas. I don't anticipate anybody actually knowing about Arkansas or where that is in the United States. Probably a Nazareth-type area, right? A backwater town. Uh, and our families got together, and we rented a cabin kind of out in a remote area. And the thing about Arkansas in the summer, it is hot and humid. You do not want to be outside for long. And they have these things called chiggers. I don't know if anybody knows what a chigger is, but they're these little insects that you cannot see that get under your skin, and they cause a whelp like a mosquito. So it's pretty miserable, and especially when you're you know, out in the middle of nowhere. So we're standing at this cabin, and we hear that there's this, this cave that you can hike to. So we're like, okay, let's go. We go outside. We're, we start sweating immediately. We're regretting our decision. But we, we finally make it to this cave, and we get there, and it's like this little hole. It's like you almost have to crawl into it. And I'm like, I don't think I'm going to go in there. Let's just get our picture by the cave, <laughs> and we'll go back. And uh, so we got our picture. We went back, and uh, a couple days later, we're looking through pictures, and we zoomed in on that one by the cave. And it was interesting. There's this coiled snake about six feet from us that if we would have actually ventured off the path just a little further, we probably would have been struck by this snake, right? But that day, if someone would have said, hey, you almost got bit by a snake today, we would have been like, what are you talking about? Man, we got, it was hot, it was sweaty, it was a little bit uncomfortable, but snakes, no. 
And um, the idea there is that there's, there was a reality around us that we were unaware of, but it doesn't mean it wasn't there. And so that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's like, there, there's a, a different dimension here that we're talking about, that you have needs, that you're actually bankrupt spiritually. You're blind spiritually. You're a prisoner spiritually, and you need a Savior. You need a Messiah who can come and free you and give you sight and give you what you need. And that's what Jesus is saying he's come to do. That's what he's saying, I am that in this passage. So Jesus came, he did do a lot of healing, he met a lot of physical needs, but he always met physical needs to underline the deeper spiritual need that people had. And our deepest need is to be forgiven our sin before a holy God. And that's what Jesus offers to do. And his ministry is pointing towards that. We're going to see that it's, it's pointing towards um, what he's going to accomplish on the cross, his sacrifice to pay the punishment on our behalf. And then his resurrection from the dead, his history tells us that he's alive. He defeated sin and death, and he is the bearer of good news. So we see that he came to fulfill prophecy. Oh, one last thought here. Um, at the very end of that prophecy, he stops mid-sentence. If you, look at, if you look back in the book of Isaiah, it goes on. But Jesus chooses to stop. He stops with this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But if you look at the text, it actually goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. And they would have been expecting him to share that part too. And they're like, wait, he stopped. Why did he stop? Jesus is communicating that now is the time of grace and mercy. Now is the time to come to me. The time is coming when God's judgment will come, and we know from the rest of Scripture that that will come when Jesus returns, but the time of his favor is now. Come to me, is what he's saying. So first, we see that he fulfills prophecy. Secondly, we see that he came to proclaim the good news, or to preach the good news. Jesus says this himself, actually. If you look at the end of chapter 4, that was read to us, verse 43, he says this, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, because that is why I was sent. In other words, this is my purpose, to do these things. The context of him saying that is he's been busy healing a long line of people. He's exhausted. He actually retreats to get away, to refuel, and the people come back to him and say, hey, there's more to be done. Would you stay? And what does he say? He says, no. Actually, I have to go tell others the good news. And so... Jesus is concerned about their physical need, but he's definitely more concerned about their spiritual, their eternal need. If you look at the, um, the prophecy there that he quotes in Isaiah, there's the verb proclaim used three times. That this Messiah is, to, is, is primarily one of proclamation. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to speak the good news. Now we see that he does all of these uh, miracles, right? But all those miracles were only underlining his message. That he was coming to preach the gospel, the good news to them, the hope of salvation. And he prioritizes this preaching of salvation over all his other activities that he does. He never just goes into a town simply just to heal someone and then leave. It's always to point to his identity, who he is, the Messiah. It reminds me of Romans chapter 10. So Paul, this is after Jesus has already ascended into heaven, after his ministry. Paul is writing to a church, the Romans, and he says this, kind of helping us better understand this idea of preaching and the need to hear the good news. 
He says, how then will they call on him, Jesus, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they, whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jesus knew that people aren't just, for, their sins aren't forgiven because they're physically healed. They have a deeper need than that. And then also in Romans 1.16, Paul shares, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. I'm not ashamed of it, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. What is the power of salvation? It's the message. It's the good news. It's what Jesus came to proclaim. And that's what he does. So something for us to stop and consider is, you know, if you're a believer following the example of Christ— now, of course, Jesus always wraps his message in love and the example of his life and his works of service, but he doesn't neglect to tell people why. And as followers of Christ, we need to be careful. We need to, we need to live a life that is attractive to people, serving and meeting the needs of others, loving our neighbors and family and coworkers, but they also have to hear it. How will they believe unless they've heard? And Jesus knew that it was a priority. That's why he came. And then thirdly, he, he came to expose our hearts, to get to our hearts. And so that's where the story goes on there. Remember back in Nazareth, Jesus completes his sermon. And it seems like quite a jump, right? It's like, okay, maybe, maybe you don't agree with the guy, but you're really going to go throw him off a cliff? Like that seems kind of drastic, right, upon the first reading. But why would he, how do the people get to that point? Well, he tells them two stories. One of Elijah sent to a widow, and then one of Elisha, don't get them confused, uh, I always switch those around, uh, sent to Naaman, a Syrian. And I'll explain those stories, but he's, he shares these two stories to highlight what's going on internally within their hearts. And so he comes to expose our hearts. And I think if we're honest, at, at, the, at the root of our hearts, a lot of times is a sense of pride. That if I can try hard enough, and this is what we're told, right, from a young age, if you try hard enough, if you apply yourself, you can do anything. And so that's what we do. We try our best. And we, we, you know, we climb the ladder, so to speak. We work hard. We apply ourselves. And a lot of times we're successful. But on a spiritual level, that doesn't work. God's saying, no, we're poor. We're blind. We're oppressed. We can't try harder. Last weekend, um, my wife and I, Mandy, we got to go see the musical Hamilton and really enjoyed it. She had been entering a drawing, like a weekly um, drawing where you can win tickets, and she won front row seats. And so we went, and we were on the seats where your feet actually touched the base of the stage. So as we're watching this unfold, we're seeing the, the sweat drops, you know, trickle down their forehead, and we're seeing the tears roll down their cheeks. You're really involved in this, in this story. And we loved it. It was, a great, it was a great time. And if you're not familiar with the story of Hamilton, it's about an immigrant from, the, from a Caribbean island who moves to New York with nothing. And his story is one of success because he has worked hard and applied himself to the, fact, to the place where he actually becomes one of the founding fathers of the United States. So an example, we love those stories, right? We love those movies where it's the self-made man or the self-made woman has nothing, and rises to the top. We, we're attracted to those, right? We want those to be us in a lot of ways. And just a couple things from uh, Hamilton, you know, the song, if you're familiar, My Shot, 
What is the constant refrain that he's saying? He's saying, I'm not throwing away my shot. What he wants is he's saying, I'm going to seize this moment, this opportunity. I'm going to apply myself. I'm going to work harder than anyone else, and I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to be successful. And then in the opening song, he is being described, who he is. It's kind of telling his story. It says that he got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter. Think about those work a lot harder, be a lot smarter, and be a self-starter. We value those things, don't we? And those are great things. It's, it's a great thing to work hard, to strive to, to get your promotion, to finish that project, to complete that education, whatever it is. And those are good values. But the problem is we try to apply that spiritually. If I just work harder, if I'm just a little better, if I just join a church, if I just read my Bible, whatever it is, I can earn the favor of God. I'll be successful. And Jesus says, no, actually, you're poor, you're bankrupt, and you can't. And so here's the stories that he shares with his listeners in Nazareth that send them over the edge. The first one is Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, which is in 1 Kings 17. And the context, Jesus tells us, is that there's three and a half years of famine going on. People are hungry. People are thirsty. Life is not favorable. That's a long famine. I mean, think about that. Three and a half years without rain. And so Elisha, uh, sorry, Elijah is sent to this woman. God tells him to go find this widow. And it's interesting. He could have, it says that he could have sent him to any widow in Israel. There's lots of those. But he sent him to an outsider, a Gentile, someone not of the Israelite community. And when he finds her, she's gathering sticks. She's going to make a fire. She's going to use her last little bit of flour in oil to make one last loaf of bread and in her own words to feed myself and my son and die she's destitute she's at the end and she realizes it and so what does elijah do he says okay how about you make a cake for me or a loaf of bread for me first and then one for you and your son it's like wait a minute is that a little insensitive here but what god does is he says go to her ask her to make you a loaf of bread and I'll do this. He says, if you do this, the jar of flour will not be used up. The jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain. In other words, God will provide for you if you trust him. Now, if this widow was anything like the people of Nazareth, she would have demanded a sign. Wait, before I give you my last, show me something. Before I'm going to trust your word, can you do a miracle here or something? Let me know that this is really from God. But she doesn't do that. She actually trusts. Why? Because she's, she sees that she's spiritually bankrupt and that she has a, a real need. Her, her physical circumstances have led her to understand her spiritual need as well. And so she does it, and her flour does not run out, and her oil does not run dry for the, for the entirety of the famine. And so the people there listening to Jesus tell this story about her. They're beginning to clench their teeth. You know, they're, they're realizing, okay, wait a minute. You're saying this outsider, this Gentile, is more wise and more spiritual than us, God's people? They were proud of what they had done. They were spiritual. But what pushes them over the edge is the next story. And Jesus goes on and he tells them about Elisha and Naaman the Syrian. Again, another outsider, Naaman, who was Naaman. This is from 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was known as a great man. Uh, he was the commander of the Syrian army. He was friends with the king of Syria. 
And the problem was is that he, he got leprosy. And so he had a skin disease that would actually lead to his death eventually. And so um, word came to them that someone in Israel may be able to heal them. So the king of Syria sends a, a messenger or a letter to the king of Israel and says, I'm sending you a leper, heal him. And the king of Israel basically almost has a heart attack because here's this powerful nation. He thinks he's being provoked to war. He's like, who am I, God? Am I going to heal this person? And what are you thinking? He thinks that he's actually trying to start an argument, and, which isn't the case. But Elisha heard about this, and he says, send him to me. Elisha was one of God's prophets living in the land at that time. And so Naaman goes to Elisha, but the thing about the, this is, is that Elisha doesn't even go out to greet him. He actually sends a servant to him and tells him to do this. He says, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. Well, Naaman didn't like that because Naaman was a wealthy man. He was well-known. He had everything he ever wanted. And to go wash in a lowly river? He's like, we have better, better rivers in Damascus where I'm from. Why should I wash here? And when he shows up, it says that he came with the equivalent of 600 regular laborers yearly wages so the yearly wages of 600 regular common people like he came with a lot of money he was wanting to pay for this healing he was wanting to do something for this healing and he says no just go wash in the river right there seven times and he actually leaves frustrated but his servants come to him and say hey wait wait Naaman rethink this you were willing to come and if you could have done something yourself you would have done it right so why not just go wash in the river and he does it and he's healed he actually has to humble himself although he's economically rich he had to come to the point where he realized i'm spiritually bankrupt and he trusts the word of the lord and he does what he's been instructed to do and through faith he believes in the god of israel and so the people of of nazareth they they get the message they get what jesus is saying <laughs> not only are you bankrupt uh spiritually and and oppressed and blind etc actually these outsiders, these non-Jews, are more spiritual and wise than you. And they don't like it, so they take him to throw him off the cliff. They reject him. And that really comes to the two responses that Jesus brings about. In this instance, the one that Luke leads with, he's openly rejected. And the other response that we'll see in Scripture, when people believe, they turn to him in faith. You are the Messiah. I need you. And those are the two camps that we find ourselves in today. We're either rejecting or we're believing. Which one of those two are you in? A couple application questions just to think through as we close. One is, yeah, what is your current posture towards Jesus as you hear this? The second one is, if you are a follower of Christ, are you speaking this good news to your friends? Are you... Are you, are you following Jesus' example in proclamation. And then thirdly, if you have trusted in Christ, we're always tempted to revert back to earning it, to not resting in the fact that, yeah, I'm poor. That's why Jesus came. I actually bring nothing. That's the beauty of the good news. I bring nothing. And yet Jesus gives me everything. In which ways are you trying to earn God's favor and how can you rest in this good news, this message to the poor this week? Let's apply it to our hearts this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Luke 4. 
Thank you that we see that Jesus came to fulfill prophecy, to proclaim the good news, to expose our hearts. So God, I pray that you would do that this week. God, thank you that you've given us the ultimate hope, the hope of eternal life through faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.